Amen. Let's pray. Fathers, we come this morning to your word. We just ask for it to do its work, for your Holy Spirit to impress upon us uh, the truths from your word. Anything that I say that's not from your word, Father, just help us to forget that. Anything that is faithful, help us to be remembering that as we go from this place. Convict us with your word. Encourage us with your word. Do all those things through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So good morning again. Um, If I uh, am sipping a bunch of water this morning, some of you know I get headaches. I have great medicine that works. It gets rid of my headaches. My headache's gone now, but it gives me dry mouth. So I sip a lot of water, particularly when I need to preach. So bear with me if I'm sipping a bunch of water this morning. So as I said, we're continuing in the book of James. Um, These last couple months, we've really focused on this idea of living in this fractured world. Dan's hit on that a lot of different times, and and particularly how godly wisdom helps us to live as Christians in a world that's fractured. That theme continued last week. Dan ended chapter 3 talking about this idea of godly wisdom, or what verse 17 of chapter 3 called wisdom from above, how when we have it, it produces the peace of God in the world. But when we come to chapter 4, James is going to explore the flip side of the coin. This sermon serves as a little bit of the other side of what Dan preached about last week because the audience of this letter is not experiencing peace. Right? James says in verse 1, they're experiencing quarrels and fights. Why? Right? If they're followers of Jesus, then why aren't they experiencing the peace that the end of chapter 3 just promised them? Well, the answer to that is that instead of relying on the wisdom from above or the wisdom from God, godly wisdom, they've begun to rely on the wisdom of the world. So in the first half of our passage, James is going to talk about the temptation to trust in the wisdom of the world. And then he's going to finish the second half of our passage by offering the solution to that temptation. What do we do when we're faced with that temptation or when we give in to the temptation to trust in worldly wisdom? So those are our two halves this morning, the temptation and the solution. Let's look first at the temptation. Why are Christians tempted to trust in the wisdom of the world? Why was the original audience of this passage tempted to trust in the wisdom of the world. Well, look at the way that James explains it in these first three verses. He says, you desire and do not have, you covet and cannot obtain, you ask but don't receive because you ask wrongly. So these Christians are tempted to trust in worldly wisdom because they aren't getting what they want or what they need. And notice that he's not actually saying it's wrong to want or need things. The issue isn't the things that they're wanting or needing. The issue is what's happening inside of them while they want or they need. James says that it's the passions that are at war inside of them that are leading them to give in to this temptation to trust in worldly wisdom. That makes sense, right? Anytime that we're faced with things that we want or that we need, we're also faced with a choice of how to acquire those things, how to get what we want, how to meet the need that we have. In other words, we're faced with a choice about wisdom. 
Now, in my house, this is a silly example, but I see that happen when it's shower night. We tell our three daughters, you got to take a shower. The problem is we have three daughters and two showers. So immediately it leads to a question. Okay, well, how do I get what I want? Do I race my sister to the shower? Do I yell out and claim one of the showers before anyone else can? Do I wait patiently and let someone else go first for one of the showers? That's a silly example, but the point is that even in the simplest things in life, like who gets to use the shower when, we're faced with choices about how to get that thing, get the thing that we want. We're faced with a decision of wisdom. Now, throughout this letter, in all the chapters, the three chapters that we've gone through so far, James has encouraged us towards godly wisdom. He's described what it looks like. He's challenged us to pursue it. He's told us several things. He said that godly wisdom is steadfast in difficult circumstances. He says that godly wisdom is stable. It's humble. It's being quick to listen. It's being slow to speak and slow to anger. He says that godly wisdom is unstained by the world. When we have godly wisdom, it leads us to being people who are impartial, who are loving, who are merciful. When you have godly wisdom, you're a person of blessing, a person of provision to others. As Dan said last week, when you have godly wisdom, you're a person that brings God's peace into the fractured world that we live in. So now James is warning us. If that's godly wisdom, then when these moments come, even simple ones, we're going to be tempted by the desires of our own heart to reject godly wisdom and embrace the wisdom of the world. So it begs the question, what is the wisdom of the world? Well, you see it in these verses. Quarreling, fighting, using what you get for your own passions, even in the worst case scenarios, murder. James says. Now, there's quite a lot of debate among scholars about whether or not James means actual murder, actual physical fighting and violence, or whether he means what's happening inside of your heart in those moments. I think a case can be made either way, but regardless, the point is the wisdom of the world says when you're faced with a need or a want, do whatever you have to do to get it. Your desires your wants, your needs are the most important thing. Do whatever it takes to see them satisfied. Whatever you feel is of ultimate importance. And so the guiding principle behind worldly wisdom is me. My feelings, my wants, my needs. And if anyone out there challenges or gets in the way of those things or tells me even to put any restraints on those things, then I have to fight you or at worst, murder you. Now we might think, well, okay, you know, obviously he's being hyperbolic, like not really going to do that. But do we have to look around the world very far to see the countless ways that human beings murder each other to get what they want? Or when someone hinders what they feel or what they desire, whether that's actual murder or murder in our hearts or the way we treat each other 
physically, emotionally, when we get in the, when they get in the way of what I want and what I need and what I feel. No, I don't actually think it's too much of a stretch of imagination to say that maybe James does anticipate real murder. And James continues to be serious in this warning. He moves on in verse 4 and says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James is saying that the person who claims to follow Jesus cannot embrace the wisdom the world offers and expect to be in friendship with God. Now, I want to caveat that and explain when James says here friendship with the world, he doesn't mean if you have friends who are not Christians. The Bible constantly encourages us to have relationships with people that are not Christians. What he's getting at here is that the person who claims to follow Jesus cannot embrace the wisdom of the world in the way that they live. He's also not saying when you find yourself failing in that way, when you mess up sometimes, when you do trust in the wisdom of the world, that you've somehow lost your relationship with God. No, what James is saying is that friendship with God and friendship with the world are incompatible. A person who trusts Jesus cannot live a life of worldly wisdom. This ought to serve as a warning for those of us who call ourselves Christians here this morning. We cannot follow Jesus and embrace a wisdom that says, pursue your own desires and your own wants at any cost. We can't follow Jesus and embrace a wisdom that says, my feelings, my rights, my personal choices are paramount over everything else. You cannot be a person that says Jesus is God, but live in a way where you make yourself God in your own heart. If you pursue friendship with the world by embracing the wisdom of the world, you will be an enemy of God. James says. He's not shy about being this direct with us in his warning. So there's application for us over all this passage because each one of us is faced with these kind of choices every day, whether it's small, simple decisions. I joked about who gets to use the shower earlier. It's something as simple as that, but it's also as big as decisions you make about relationships and family, career, money, are we going to embrace the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world? On a daily basis, what is it that you find guiding you? Do you find that most of your decision-making is rooted in your own desires? Is your primary question when you're faced with a decision, how do I feel? What are my preferences? What are my rights? What belongs to me? Where do you find yourself operating with worldly wisdom. I find myself confronted on a lot of different levels by this passage, whether it's the daily decisions I make as a father, a friend, a husband, a pastor, or whether it's the big decisions I make about where my family's going and what career I have, how I use my money. I'm constantly having to ask myself, what's happening in my heart? What's guiding these decisions? What wisdom Am I relying on? Am I making these decisions and living according to godly wisdom or the wisdom 
of the world. Now, if this passage convicts you like it does for me, the question is, what do we do next? How do we respond when we realize that we've given into that temptation in a lot of ways? Maybe we're actively doing it right now. What do we do? Well, James offers an answer to that question in the second half of this chapter. Look with me back at verse 6. When we find ourselves failing to trust in godly wisdom, James actually encourages us with a great answer. He says, but God gives more grace. God's answer to our mistrust God's answer to our adulterous hearts that continue to go back to worldly wisdom is grace. Now, I know that many of us, when we realize there's a pattern in our life of defeat, of failure, it can be easy to fall into that pattern and and to think, well, maybe I'm, I'm just not any good at this godly wisdom thing. I keep making the wrong choices. I keep relying on the wrong wisdom. I keep giving into temptation. I keep finding myself in these quarrels and these fights, whether they're inside of me or outside of me. I keep finding myself in them of my own making. So what's the point? Why try? Well, if that's you, then James offers this reminder. God gives more grace. And he continues, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We said earlier that the guiding principle behind worldly wisdom is me. It's when I make myself the ultimate center of everything. But humility is the opposite of that. The Oxford Dictionary defines humility as a modest or low view of one's own importance. So according to James, the very first step away from the wisdom of the world and back towards godly wisdom is to remove myself from the center. That's where James goes in verse 7. You are not the center. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The person who has themselves at the center of their life, the person who the self is the most important thing in their world, does not like the word submit. In fact, that word in our culture has almost become a curse. To submit to something is almost always thought of as negative. Now, I will acknowledge that's usually because we've seen that submitting something, giving something authority over us, leads to the abuse of that power. That's a real thing. We don't dismiss that lightly. But we want to remember that in this case, what we're submitting to is God, a God that offers grace, a God that opposes the proud, a God that provides the kind of wisdom that James has talked about all through this book. So we don't have to fear submission to God because he's a good God. Not to mention, we've already seen the alternative. How does life look when you embrace the wisdom that says, I'm the center of everything. Has that seemed to work out well in your life or in the world? My observation is that leads to disaster. 
leads to out-of-control passions and desires that at best result in fights and quarrels and at worst result in murder. That path has been tested throughout human history and found wanting. And in fact, if we really examine it, this idea of not submitting to anything is actually submitting to something. It's submitting to who James calls Satan, the evil one. You actually remember back in the garden, the very first sin of Adam and Eve. James or uh, Satan says to them, did God really say that if you eat of that tree, you'll die? No, if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. The very first lie, the very first deception was to say, no, you can be God. You can be the sinner. And so the path of not submitting to God, thinking that we can be our own God, is actually submission to the evil one, to Satan. And that's what James says in the second half of verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the good news. If we resist, if we make it a practice to submit to God, to pursue the path of godly wisdom, to reject the wisdom of the world, Satan will flee. 1 Corinthians, Paul's word says the same thing. When temptation comes, it will never be beyond your ability to resist, and God will provide a way of escape. That sounds to me like James God will give more grace. When we trust in the wisdom of the world, we believe it's the path to greatness. We make ourselves the center. So we need to resist. But James also says we need to repent. This is how he finishes his argument in verses 8 and 9. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, the path to greatness and power and success and exaltation, the world says, is you. Elevate yourself. Prioritize yourself you'll win. That's what life's about. Most of us have grown up in a culture that encourages that message at every turn. Relationships, family, school, career. Make yourself number one. Look out for yourself and you'll win. You'll have success. And as we recognize the ways that we've intentionally or unintentionally embraced that message, James says that it ought to cause us to mourn and to weep. Why? Well, because I think each one of us, if we're honest, can look at the world and see all the quarreling and see all the fighting and see all the murder and know that something's wrong. Something's wrong in this world. But we read a passage like this and James smacks us in the face and reminds us that yes, something's wrong. We are what's wrong. Our hearts, 
our passions, our self-idolatry are the cause of all the evil in the world. So yes, we ought to look around and see that something's wrong. We also ought to look at our own hearts and see that we're part of the problem. That should lead us to mourn and to weep and to repent. We ought to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, James says. We ought to look at that evil and instead draw near to God in humility and mourning for the ways, small or big, that we've been part of the wisdom of the world and perpetuating that evil in our own lives and the lives of people around us. Are you willing to repent this morning? Are you willing to confess your own self-idolatry, your own heart, the passions that turn to the wisdom of the world that lead to fighting and murder in your own heart? Will you draw near to God? Will you humble yourself and ask for grace and turn back to the way of godly wisdom this morning. That's what God's calling each of us to do in this passage. But he ends with great news. And that's what we're about to do now is come to this table. This passage wants us to feel the weight of sin and guilt. I feel it even as I talk about it. But sin and guilt and shame are never the end of God's story, but he gives more grace, James reminds us. That's where we're reminded of the work of Jesus. Jesus gave up his body and his blood. He knew that our hearts were the problem. He knew that I was the source of evil in the world, that the things that I do, my reliance and trust in the wisdom of the world is destroying his good creation, but he offered his body and blood for me anyway. God gives more grace because of Jesus. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us because of Jesus. When we humble ourselves, God exalts us because of Jesus. So this word this morning should convict our hearts. It should remind us of our sin and our guilt, but it should also remind us of why Jesus is so precious to us. Because Jesus is the wisdom of God in the flesh. And the wisdom of God desired you so much that he died for you. That's the reason that James says that we can't coexist with the wisdom of the world. is because you've been bought by the wisdom of God. Jesus has bought you and he's brought you back to the Father who will exalt you. So as we come down to the table... Lay down your sin and your guilt and your shame. Come to the table and lay that down. Lay down the wisdom of the world and pick up joy and freedom in Jesus, the wisdom of God. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for Jesus who died for us so that we might live. We pray as we come to the table that we would take up this body and blood and we would be reminded not only of our sin and shame and be able to lay that down, but more importantly of the joy and the freedom of trusting in your wisdom that bought us with this price. In your name, amen.